Okay. We stopped. We stopped on page... I didn't realize we only got to page two. Page three, actually. We stopped on page two, and I would like to start there again and have us read those two scenarios. So that's on page two, scenario A. John hurt Frank's youngest son, and Frank is angry at John for hurting his child. John is afraid of what Frank may do to him for hurting his son, so in fear he begs Frank to forgive him. Frank says, before I can forgive you, I must unleash my punishment and assuage my anger. So I will treat my eldest son the way you deserve to be treated. You deserve death, so I will put my eldest son to death in your place. In doing so, I will be inflicting the penalty on myself because I love my eldest son and will thus assuage my anger. Frank does this, is reconciled to John because of it, and now can forgive him. Let's pause for a moment. Who or what is the problem here? John or Frank? Frank here. Frank seems to have the biggest problem here. He's the one that's hurt. Okay. Um, Frank is the one hurt. You all agree with that? Is God hurt when we sin? And if so, in what way? Maybe sad to see his children go astray. I don't know if it like physically stings him or something, but it just hurts to to see people he loves doing things that he knows are he knows is bad for them. Like a parent, like a parent uh, who sees their p- children making choices that they know are going to hurt them later on. Is that? It's a little different in this scenario than that. Frank is personally hurt or he's hurt and offended because his, his, his holiness has been flaunted. He, he hasn't been respected for who he is. So let's, uh, let's ask the next question. What is forgiveness in scenario A? almost a consequence of punishment. Once that is done, then forgiveness can happen. I'm not really sure if forgiveness means anything in this scenario. But so in other words, you have a problem with if, if you have to punish someone before you can forgive, how is that forgiveness? Forgiveness, maybe we should work on a definition of forgiveness. What is forgiveness? I would say kind of bridging the gap that was created through hurting someone. There's a gap of uh, status almost. Okay, a a gap maybe of trust, distrust. And a, a gap of where now I have put you at a disadvantage by hurting you. What is legal forgiveness? You have paid the penalty, like, or you went to jail and now you can be forgiven. <laughs> okay, so so in that sense, 
You should be able to be forgiven because you atone for your own sin. You make the atonement for yourself. Now, we're going to come to this again, so I'm going to, I'm going to jump from, to another topic because I think this is important to establish. Second question I have, or third question I have, is can John be close to Frank now? And can Frank get close to John? Those two questions are, are counterparts of each other. What do you think? Frank has unleashed his anger. He's, he's paid the price to forgive. Can he now be close to Frank? And what is the basis of that closeness? I'm, I'm sorry, Frank, yes, John, he can be close to John. And what is the closeness? What is the basis of that closeness? Uh, it doesn't seem like John, the guy who hurt Frank, can be very close to Frank. Because, I mean, I would feel guilty because he, now he, two of his sons are hurt, right? You know, and and what what more? Like I don't know. Did 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 Frank really forgive John? Because now two of his sons are dead and one's hurt. One's dead and one's hurt. So, oh, what do you do with that? I agree. I think that guilt would have a big part to play, at least with me. If if I was if I was John here now, I might be afraid of doing anything else to uh, his remaining son, <laughs> uh, and kind of really scared and watching myself. I I may not want to interact with his son anymore uh, because I'm afraid that I'll hurt him, and then thus Frank will have to exact his judgment in order to forgive me. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? that looking at the cross of Christ can actually increase our guilt. Now, there's a level in which maybe that's important that we recognize sin for what it is, but that's a different kind of guilt. In legal guilt, you are now guilty for having caused all of this havoc. And on top of that, the effects of Frank killing his son on me would be, I'm now afraid of Frank all the more. And so the gap is still there. The gap is there, yeah. Certainly, and, and this is, uh, what we're doing here is we're taking this legal perception and we're trying to experientially understand it. And the problem is legal perceptions, when they're experientially understood, turn out to be very different than they sound when we actually say them. So we want to, want to keep that in mind. Now let's go to the second scenario, scenario B. And um, Jonathan, I'm going to ask you to read that, please. John hurts Frank's youngest son because he believed, because he believed lies somebody told him about Frank. Frank is grieved that John would so hurt himself by hurting Frank's, John, Frank's son. Yes, he also grieves over his son's hurt, but in love it hurts him to see someone he loves reject friendship. He longs to forgive John, but he knows that mere forgiveness would not heal the damage John did to himself. Of course, John feels guilty, but that is more because he fears he has made Frank angry and doesn't want to feel his wrath. John lacks a sense of the enormity of what he did to Frank's son, to Frank and even to himself. He fails to see how opposite his deed was to Frank's love for him and how destructive it was to John himself. 
So Frank talks it over with his eldest son, and his eldest son says, Dad, let me bear the sin John did against my brother. Let me bear the hurt he did to you and the hurt against himself. Let me show John that you aren't angry at him for any personal reasons, but that sin itself is evil and destructive to love and trust and ultimately, and ultimately to life itself, and that's why you hate it. Let me show John your love and how I can save him from sin and its destructive consequence through running him back to love and trust again. Frank's eldest son does this for John. How will John feel when he sees that sees this demonstration of conse- the consequences of his sin and Frank's love for him? Would it not lead him to repentance, to loathe what he did against Frank's youngest son? Would it not lead him to turn away from ever wanting to do that sin again? Would he not long for John's forgiveness and immediately get the assurance that a friend who loved him so much would certainly forgive him? So, a, a preliminary question here. What is the difference between this way of explanation and the next way? It seems like the fundamental problem has, shift, uh, has, uh, has shifted from being like Frank or God to the, the sin that he did, or that the actions. Like the actions themselves are devastating and not God's reaction to the problem. Well said. Well said. So let's move now then. You, you have actually answered the question I have here. Who or what is the problem, John or Frank? Can John be close to Frank now? Can Frank get close to John? This was the problem in the other scenario. You don't have that closeness that you need. So can, can that closeness be achieved now? What do you think? I'd like input from our resident psychologist. <laughs> I've got a few more years for that before I can claim that title legally. <laughs> legally. Um, but I mean, like, it, putting this into my own experience, uh, I know that I will probably still make mistakes. But with this kind of action, I know that uh, the, there will be consequences for my mistakes, but they won't be as drastic, and so I don't need to fear of making a mistake. I will make a mistake and I will feel bad about it, but I know that there's a relationship that can still happen and that someone's able and willing to meet me where I was in my mistake. That's interesting because your, your perception is because this is the length to which Frank would go to demonstrate the truth about sin and the truth about his love for, for John. It's no longer a system of you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. Uh, you, you, you fell, you stumbled and fell, you're out. You picked up and carried on, you're now in. Uh, it's, it's not that kind of system at all. It's a relationship that is where the other party is bigger than you are and, and carries the heavier end of that relationship. Well, and the biggest uh, difference I see here is scenario two, there's a support system for John. Uh, In the other system, this whole redemption is isolated from John. That's what has led forensic scholars to maintain that salvation is objective. Because it is apart from us. There's nothing, and, and the good news in that is there's nothing we can do to bring that salvation to ourselves. So that's a very important aspect of this other model. Okay, uh, let's go to statement number 14. This is the other handout that I suggested you take out. 
The one that says Alan G. White's use of forensic terminology. The grace of Christ and the law of God are inseparable. In Jesus, mercy and truth are met together. He was a representative of God and the exemplar of humanity. He presented to the world what humanity might become when united by faith with divinity. The only begotten Son of God took upon him the nature of man and established his cross between earth and heaven. Through the cross, man was drawn to God and God to man. Justice moved from its height, high and awful position, and the heavenly hosts, the armies of holiness, drew near to the cross, bowing with reverence. For the cross, justice was satisfied. Through the cross, the sinner was drawn from the stronghold of sin, from the confederacy of evil, and at every approach to the cross, his heart relents and its penitence he cries. It was my sin that crucified the Son of God. At the cross, he leaves his sins, and through the grace of Christ, his character is transformed. So, in light of what we have just discussed, how can we interpret this paragraph in harmony with her, all her other statements about this? I don't have very many notes on this one uh, because they're, they're really, I think, dealt with in what's above. Well, she certainly seems to uh, dwell upon the idea that the cross is not meant to induce a legal kind of guilt, but to draw us to God. And, and that's very, very clear. Uh, this is a little bit of what I call oppositional writing. Uh, Ellen White often says things in what sounds like a legal mode, and then he, she switches to an experiential mode, and she says it again. And if you look at these two sentences, justice moved from its high and awful position in the heavenly host, the armies of holiness, drew near the cross, bowing with reverence for at the cross, justice was satisfied, and then the next sentence, through the cross, the sinner was drawn from the stronghold of sin, from the confederacy of evil, and at every approach to the heart, cross, his heart relents. If, if, if she's really saying the same thing twice, the reason justice moves and, and says this is enough, this is, this is right, is because the, he, he now has, it, or it, I think she's personifying justice here, justice has the right to forgive because human beings will now accept forgiveness. They will now see what sin really is and what it really does. And they will really repent. In, in a legal construct, repentance is different. Repentance stems from, from the awfulness of guilt. The guilt is somewhat imposed by the concept that God is offended by my sin. Uh, it's, it's the same way, if you remember as a child, if in, in probably you had parents that were perfect uh, and they never got cross with you. Uh, <laughs> but if you remember a time when they did, they, they got cross and they said some things that stung and you went away feeling guilty and you said, I'm sorry. What was your motivation for saying, I'm sorry? To escape punishment. <laughs> to escape punishment? Not because you really recognized that what you did was wrong. And, and you see, that's the difference between these two models. What is wrong with sin is that it offends God. 
in the in the legal model. In in the trust and healing model, or whatever you want to call this model, that I like to think of as experiential. In that model, sin destroys us. Sin is destructive. It's anti-love. It's anti-trust. It's anti-truth. Uh, and at the cross, I see the full results of sin. And why do I want to belong to sin? Because sin is, is all about force. And sin hurts. Sin, we're all, in a sense, slaves of sin, victims of sin. And you can use those terms because really sin is abusive to us. So why wouldn't we want to get free from it and turn around from it and repent from it? And, and so the goodness of God leads us to repentance, as they use Paul uh, in Romans 2, 2, verse 4. So you notice that she says here that um, in Jesus, mercy and truth are met together. It sounds like they were separated and what I think we have to keep in mind is who separated them? Satan. Yes, Satan is the one who separated them. Not God. So, the other thing I'd like to suggest is that she's hinting at something that First John 1 John 1.9 says. that If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Justice is forgiving when we confess. When, when we own it and we say we don't want it anymore, then justice is satisfied with that. And what brought us to that point is recognizing, again, in Jesus' death, what, what sin does. And it's the experience of recognizing the damage that that sin does that allows a healing process to even start. Yes, Yes. Okay, let's move on now to number 15. And this time, Adam, would you read this, please? Uh, Christ hath proved God's administration and government to be without a flaw. Satan's charge in regard to the conflicting attributes of justice and mercy was forever settled beyond question. Every voice in heaven and out of heaven will one day testify to the justice, mercy, and exalted attributes of God. It was in order that the heavenly universe might see the conditions of the uh, covenant of redemption that Christ bore the penalty in behalf of the human race. Any problems with that one? I didn't say anything hardly with this one. I guess the one thing that stands out to me is that first sentence. Uh, with the idea that Christ's death uh, was something that was proof Mm-hmm. of the way God's system works mm-hmm. and the way the system of sin works. Yeah. And I'm more and more coming to the point, to the belief that the ramifications of this are, are, are huge. I haven't fully unpacked them. But you'll see by the end of the document that I'm beginning to uh, more fully. And, and of course, we're told that we will be studying this throughout eternity, so <laughs> obviously we'll never unpack it here. Okay, and I refer you 
to this, with this particular paragraph, I refer you to Desire of Ages 761, which is on page 10 of the other document. You don't have to turn to that. That's just the, where the statement where she talks about how Satan claimed that justice, if, if God were to be just, he could not forgive, and if he would forgive, he would not be just. But Jesus' death shows that that is not a problem. And, and the only way in which justice and mercy actually do conflict in God is if God is in the legal model, if his government is a legal one. Okay, number 16, Christina. His, Christ's object, was to reconcile the prerogatives of justice and mercy and let each stand separate in its dignity, yet united. His mercy was not weakness, but a terrible power to punish sin because it is sin yet a power to draw to it the love of humanity. Through Christ, justice is enabled to forgive without sacrificing one jot of its exalted holiness. This is very similar to number 12, and you might look above, not in the statements, but in the notes. And... and there, what I suggest is that mercy is a terrible power to punish sin because it is sin. If mercy is letting people have their own way and also letting go of the sin that is not holding it against them, it is then also a power to draw it because if I don't hold your sin against you, you know that I'm not, I'm not holding your sin over your head and making you feel guilty and driving that guilt in. But I also suggest that God's mercy is powerful to draw us or destroy us in Romans 2.4. Remember, we read that last week. Uh, the goodness of God is meant to lead you to repentance, Paul says. And then a few lines down, he says that those who resist the, the mercy of God will... Uh, well, maybe we should just actually read it. Let me turn to it quickly. Romans 2. Or do you have show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath in yourselves, not for yourselves, but in yourselves, for the day of wrath. And, and my version, this is the TNIV, my version has for the day of God's wrath, but God is not, God's is not in the original Greek. That's been added. So I think Paul sees us as, as we're our own vessels of our own anger because what can happen if you resist the mercy of God, you resist the love of God, you don't let it lead you to repentance. You repent maybe some other way, or you don't repent at all, then when you resist mercy and love, the, you store storing up anger and, and all kinds of emotional uh, frustrations and, and what have you. And so that's how mercy, mercy doesn't change in this, but mercy is, uh, what is it she says here, um, is a terrible power to punish sin because it is sin. That is because of the nature of sin. I think that's what she means by because it is sin. 
So, so the mercy doesn't change. It's, it's because I resist it. It seems to be a p- terrible power to punish. And the other analogy I suggested was if, if you look at the face of God, his, no man can see his face and live in, in their sinful state. And God's face is, in ancient Near Eastern perception, seeing the face of seeing mercy, seeing the mercy of that person, seeing their favor. Uh, so, out of harmony with his mercy, it is a terrible power to, to punish, to destroy, but it's not, how shall I put it, it's not arbitrarily, externally imposing it. It's, it's a natural consequence. The other uh, possibility here, too, is that God in his mercy and through his power restrains evil. The presence of the Holy Spirit on this planet, the more he is here, the less evil people can do because they're enveloped with his love. And love has tremendous restraining power. I've seen that actually happen. And so once God lets that restraining power go, the more terrible are the results because of the dam is now burst. And it's, it's, it comes out in all its fury. Okay, let's uh, move to number 17. The death of Christ was to be convincing, everlasting argument that the law of God is as unchangeable as his throne. The agonies of the Garden of Gethsemane, the insult, the mockery, the abuse heaped upon God's dear Son, the horrors and ignominy of the crucifixion furnish sufficient and thrilling demonstration that God's justice when it punishes, does the work thoroughly. The fact that his own son, the surety for man, was not spared is an argument that will stand to all eternity before Satan's sinner, before the universe of God, to testify that he will not excuse the transgressor of his law. This is used, this, this statement is used to say, you see, God's justice is directly punishing God. Uh, and, and in order to, to say that, God would have had to create himself the agonies of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. He would have had to be the one to instigate the trial, all of the abuse that heaped on Christ in the trial, the, she says, the insult, the mockery, the abuse, and the horrors and ignominy of the crucifixion which would mean that God, that the Jews were on, that the, those who crucified Christ were on God's side. They were doing His will. That's, that's how you would have to read that statement. Now, I, I, before I comment, I'd like you to turn in the same document to number 26, which is the last statement in, in the atonement section. It's not the last statement in the document, but it's the last statement in the atonement section on page 10. Uh, actually, page 9 is where it starts. And Caitlin, I'm wondering if you would read. When Christ cried out from the cross, it is finished, all heaven triumphed. The controversy between Christ and Satan in regard to the execution of the plan of salvation was ended. The spirit of Satan and his works had taken deep root in the affections of the children of men. 
But the holy angels were horror-stricken that one of their number could fall so far as to be capable of such cruelty as had been manifested toward the Son of God on Calvary. Every sentiment of pity and sympathy which they had ever felt for Satan in his exile was quenched in their hearts. That his envy should be manifested in such a revenge upon the uninnocent person was enough to strip him of his assumed robe of celestial light and to reveal the hideous deformity beneath. But to manifest such malignity toward the divine Son of God, who had with unprecedented self-denial and love for the creatures formed in his image, come from heaven and assumed their fallen nature, which was such a heinous crime against heaven, that it caused the angels to shudder with horror and severed the last tie of sympathy existing between Satan and the heavenly world. When Christ died on Calvary's cross, he exclaimed in his expiring agony, It is finished! And Satan knew that he had been defeated in his purpose to overthrow the plan of salvation. When the Son of God came forth from Joseph's sepulchre, a triumphant conqueror over death, and broke the fetters of the tomb, he led forth the captives that Satan had bound in the grave. He presented to the world a sample of the great resurrection day, when all who have fallen asleep in Jesus shall be raised to a glorious immortality. They shall come forth from their graves at the trump of God, and shall ascend to the city of God and see the King in his beauty. When Christ cried, It is finished, the great sacrifice was complete. Satan and his angels were uprooted from the affection of the universe. Satan had taken such a course of deception that the angels of heaven had been in doubt of his real character. God moves in a straightforward course. It was impossible for God to lie, but Satan was as crooked as a serpent. All heaven rejoiced when Christ rose from the dead. He had power to bind the strong man and to despoil him of his goods. Who caused all that suffering at the cross and before? Satan. Satan. And she makes that clear. And here's a good example of how we can put these two statements side by side. And are we, are we going to pick one over the other? Or are we going to say they both stand and then harmonize them? And so it seems to me that we have to go back to the statement number 17 and say, what did God's justice do? How did he punish Jesus? He handed him over to Satan. He let him go to Satan. And, and by the way, uh, when we study this again in the Bible, we'll find in Romans that Paul actually says he was handed over to death. Uh, actually, to death is not in the Greek. He simply says he was handed over for our transgressions, which is because of our transgressions. So, so this, this is how God's justice works. He hand, hands us over to the, the path we've chosen, which if we choose force, we're really choosing to be on Satan's side. The last sentence there, she says, the fact that his own son, the surety for man, was not spared, that word not spared, means that God did not restrain the evil powers. And I, I just have to point this out again, that the Sanhedrin and the Roman court were both legal entities. 
Jesus suffered all of this. Satan used the legal entities to cause the suffering of Jesus. I think we'll skip number 18 and let's move to number 19. The death of Christ removed every argument that Satan could bring against the precepts of Jehovah. Satan has declared that men could not enter the kingdom of heaven unless the law was abolished, and a way devised by which transgressors could be reinstated into the favor of God and made heirs of heaven. He made the claim that the law must be changed, that the reins of government must be slackened in heaven, that sin must be tolerated, and sinners pitied and saved in their sins. But every such plea was cast aside when Christ died as a substitute for the sinner. Why? Why is that true? Why can't God save sinners in their sins? The consequences are so natural that even God would have to follow them, like as Jesus showed. Okay. That's, that's pretty powerful. Do we, want it, do we want an eternity full of distrust? Even if God could keep us alive for eternity, arbitrarily. It would be arbitrarily on artificial life support. Do we want a heaven full of distrust, full of hate, full of anger, full of uh, all the things that we do as sinners that hurt other people and hurt ourselves? Sounds like hell. Sounds like hell. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, I think we can manage one more, and that's number 20. And I'll read that. The atonement of Christ was not made in order to induce God to love those whom he otherwise hated. And it was not made to produce a love that was not in existence. And I would think that in now, if she were to read some of the books that I've read, she would say, and it was not made to allow God to be loving. But it was made in manifest, as a manifestation of the love that was already in God's heart. So it manifested the love. It didn't create that love. It didn't allow that love. It simply made it clear. That was already in God's heart and exponent of the divine favor in the sight of heavenly intelligence. It says, in the sight of, heavens un- of worlds unfallen and in the sight of the fallen race. We are not to entertain the idea that God loves because he Christ died for us. So that's all inclusive there. But that he so loved and he gave his only begotten son to die for us. And I think this, this helps us to shift from the legal framework to the moral framework, or the experiential framework that I think is so important to understanding. We have two minutes left. Any questions or comments? This is a good stopping place. Next week will be heavier, (laughs) as you can tell. Yeah, just kind of the whole natural law framework that you talked about. Um, Like, where does that come from? Is that just kind of intrinsic in God's character or in his being? Like, yeah. (laughs) Well, first of all, we have to ask, what is God's character? And and if God is... uh, if we take 1 John 4.16 at face value, God is love. And Ellen White expands on that and says, God is in his essence love. 
That is who he is. If, if we take that, then what happens when you're outside that love? When, when you go away from that love, when you separate from that love, if nothing were to happen, what would, that, what, what, what would the result be? If I could hit you and you get wounded by my fist or whatever I used to hit you with, and nothing happens, you don't actually get wounded. You don't actually, nothing happens. What kind of a world would that be where I could do anything I wanted uh, in anger? I, I don't see how on, an, on a practical level. I think theoretically that is more of a problem than on a practical level because we live with consequences every day of our lives with people hurting us. Um, and, and, and a real experiential level of understanding there's no other way it can be and I think that's what Jesus' death actually established and I haven't plumbed the depths of that I, I, so I'm, I'm kind of fumbling around here trying to answer your question um, but I, that's my understanding is that Jesus' death made it clear that there is no other way God can run the universe than through these cause-effect relationships they're as real and solid as eternity in terms of the moral government now, in terms of natural law as the, nature, as the natural world, like the law of gravity, God can introduce other laws to offset, and he can, he can actually fiddle with those without severe consequences because the natural realm is not under moral law as such. But moral law is, is eternal and fixed, and there is no other way it can be. That's, that's how I see it. So... Uh, that's the best I can do at this point until I have further understanding. <laughs> yeah. That's a good question. Okay, well, why don't we have closing prayer? Father, we thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to think, to dialogue, to reflect, to analyze, to reason together about you. We know that every time we do this, we have become a little bit more like you in character. We ask that we will continue to do this throughout our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one of the things that um, I've been using to help me understand, like, for instance, how, the, how this mercy and love can be a terrible punishment uh, is... <laughs> um, I just remember I went uh, in, lo in looking for different graduate schools uh, there was one school I went to where there was a talk given by a therapist or a psychotherapist uh, who was uh, talking about some mistakes that early psychotherapists make in their careers and he said probably the most common mistake is uh, the therapist will just try to lavish love upon the patient, like unconditional acceptance and uh, warm and fuzzies. Uh, but for some patients, that's devastating and it's hurtful. Uh, because, uh, like for instance, uh, people with uh, avoidant personality disorder, um, they are enveloped in a character or a personality that's a set of 
uh, habits and behaviors and reactions uh, that is a distrust of what they're presented with and so it's not that they don't want love it's that they can't accept it or that they can't accept acceptance and so presenting them full forced with this kind of love and unconditional regard actually not turns them off but actually puts them off uh, and actually distances the therapist from the patient uh, and that was something that I found so interesting and so sad um, yeah uh, and it's just uh, of, of course the the point of that therapy would take a very long time but would be to gradually introduce the patient into a place where they could start to accept this acceptance but at face value and at the start of the therapy that's actually hurtful so what you're suggesting is the therapist might have to use those to tune in to those habits and patterns and, and structures and use them Absolutely. to hopefully move them yeah. toward that where they can love. Now, does that sound like the God of the Old Testament by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, it's not that the therapist stands and like, ah, get in this room and sit down. <laughs> it's not that they're abusive, but they have to be careful about the kind of language that they use and the ways in which they try to convey their love uh, and acceptance towards the client. It's not that they stop doing it. It's just they have to change the language in which they can use that. I've sometimes wondered, you know, what she said about the angels having so much sympathy for Satan to the, almost to the point of feeling sorry for him, that God had treated him the way he did. He made him be in exile. How, how horrendous is that? Um, and, and if you read carefully what she says about the onlooking universe and the angels and their participation in this whole great controversy, they're, they definitely have been swayed to believe that God's justice is ready to punish and, and let's do it and let's do it more often and, and so on. And I've often wondered if, if the reason God thundered from Sinai got everybody's attention, everybody's freaked out, everybody's terrified. Um, Forty days later, they're worshiping a golden calf. God turns to the universe and says, did that work? <laughs> um, and, I, and I'm wondering if, if that isn't why he did that to, to forever settle the question if God you just thundered at me I would come through you see no it doesn't work that way um, what, you, what, you, uh, what you've said is, is very very good and it's experiential yeah well and of course part of that uh, uh, part of that guy's talk was how you have to enter into an actual relationship with the client. It's not textbook. Mm -hmm. There are some things you need to know before engaging in a relationship with someone who naturally interprets love as something false, mm -hmm. uh, as in like avoiding personality disorder, but you have to actually get to know them and then learn to talk in their language. You know, I, I went for, for counseling uh, with somebody who used to work here, uh, very fine person and I was always amazed when I would go in to see her how the relationship and the dynamic of that relationship brought such healing that I would go away feeling restored <laughs> it was just amazing that there's there's more and I think honestly that if we're in tune with God and we allow the spirit to use us that that ability to heal others is going to be that much more pronounced uh, and powerful.
but again, we have to be careful how what, how we how we use that, um, or how we allow how we respond. We respond. We respond. We respond. We respond.